Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Ich warte seit Wochen auf diesen Tag und tanz vor Freude über den Asphalt. Als wär's ein Rhythmus, als gäb's ein Lied, das mich immer weiter durch die Straßen zieht. Komm dir entgegen. Hello and welcome to the Gig Impressing Podcast. My name is Stefan Binkowski and although I don't usually host this show, uh, I'm hosting it this week because I've been away on a boozy weekend in Amsterdam and to put it frank, my brain is scrambled eggs. So as ever, I'm joined by Manu Vait, but he's moved into the pundit-in-chief role uh, for today's show and just to kind of add some extra weight to the show, we are delighted to welcome Seb Stafford Blower back. Uh, Seb, we wait years and years for our first Seb appearance and suddenly two come along one after the other. How are you doing? And once again, thanks for joining us to talk some German football. No, it's my pleasure. I feel like if I'm uh, if I'm on a, a German football podcast, it should like count towards my residency application or something like that eventually. <laughs> it's like a, just a, another notch on the belt. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, I know how difficult that process can be, so anything we can do to help. <laughs> um, but one man who's decided to rip up his German residency and move to the other side of the world, of course, is Manu. And Manu, how are you doing today? Uh, so technically, I still have German residency. Um, I still have a residency. You're staying in my residence, Stefan, later this week. Um, yes, not right now. That'd be weird. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm making, a, I'm making so, a short 24-hour visit to Munich. And luckily, Manu's parents have been very helpful in letting me sleep in his old room, which is honestly just a very weird um, thing to add. Another, another weird dimension to add to this podcast. Yeah, well, everything that helps, right? Um, it's the Klassiker. Um, and I think this Klassiker has gotten way more interesting than... Uh, it was already so interesting, right? Because of the way it was all set up, um, with Dortmund being first and coming to Munich. Mm. Um, and then, of course, Bayern Munich ruined everyone's uh, Thursday night and Friday morning plans uh, last week, uh, including both of our holidays, Stefan. <laughs> and <laughs> we're releasing Julian Nagelsmann. And replacing him with Thomas Tuchel and uh, Seb, you of course were on the the Twitter reaction show, and I, uh, as I said at the time, it'd be really interesting to come back and sort of after we've taken it all in a weekend full of uh, German newspapers and reactions um, <laughs> to come back and sort of do a post mortem, mm. um, and that's sort of what we're trying to do here. I, I, I want to say we're going to make sense of it. Um, that would be a lie because I don't think we can, but I think we're going to try our best. Yes. So in short, this is the reaction show to the reaction show, um, yeah. 48 hours, 72 hours on. Um, but as ever, we're going to cut to a short break here and then we'll jump into it. This episode of the Gig Pressing Podcast is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online remains your number one source for all your college basketball betting this season. Get analysis of every play, prop, and point at BetOnline. You'll find the latest odds, bracket contests, team matchups, and game trends at BetOnline. Updated odds for everything from live games to conference championship right through the Final Four and championship game. BetOnline is your college basketball headquarters this season. Head to the website today or use the mobile device to sign up and receive 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. 
be sure to use your promo code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, BELIEVE, to receive your bonus. BetOnline.ag, where the game starts. So yeah, guys, we now know that Thomas Tuchel is the new Bayern Munich head coach. Um, a lot has been kind of said um, in the press and over the last week. A lot of column inches have been applied to this. Um, and, you know, the club itself has said a fair few things themselves, even a few of the players, actually, which is something we can maybe get on to. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I'll start with you, Seb, actually, because I know Manu's got probably three notepads worth of info and, you know, insider <laughs> knowledge that he's going to drop on us, which he'll add maybe some fun context, but just taking it all in from where you are in Hamburg, what what did you, uh, what did you make of it all? And, and I guess more importantly, has anything changed since we spoke on the last show? In order, I suppose, craziness. I, I, I said before we started recording that this was the first true Bayern crisis I've experienced is moving over to Germany. And I wasn't really, I wasn't really expecting the kind of the volume of media coverage. I know that I, I, I know that the club deserves this nickname and I understand the hold it has over German media. I also understand the sort of the focus that um, German Sky and every other, um, you know, football focused outlet in the country uh, places on Bayern. But it was like, and I described this to an English friend, it was like combining the um, the media attention of probably, you know, the biggest four clubs in England and then uh, seeing what comes out at the other end. And I think what surprised me, Stefan, is is, is the, just the tonnage of different stories within it. So mm-hmm. you kind of, you have the mega structure, yeah, which is the, the sacking and the reasons for the sacking and Tickle coming in to, to replace him. And then you have all of these other bits, which in some cases are kind of conflicting. So um, the different things which people are, what people within the dressing room are supposed to have disliked about Julian Nagelsmann. Then you've had the sort of the counter narrative, which is um, Leon Goretzka and Joshua Kimmich talking about what a good coach they thought he was during international duty. Um, You've had, I mean, from about an hour after his name first got mentioned in connection with the job, you saw all those videos of Thomas Tuchel from his time at Mainz him shouting at players and, you know, in some cases bullying a couple of them, I, I felt <laughs> watching watching that a couple of years later. And it's been, it almost feels like a trauma. And I, I don't use that word lightly, but it, it feels like um, something fundamental has happened at the top of German football, which I suppose it has, of course. But it's a it's a level of melodrama and it's almost a glee. There's a, um, there's quite a... Um, a tangible sense of delight, which seems to go into a lot of the reporting, not in the sort of schadenfreude way, but in, in the sense that like, it's the big story that we can all make lots of digital, well, not dollars, but euros out of. And it's mm. it's that time of year where um, the uh, the audience is at its maximum, um, not necessarily just within Germany, but a lot of, uh, a lot of English speaking media is taking its news directly from German sources and, you know, banging headlines through Google Translate and, and recycling them into their own work and, and that kind of stuff. And so it feels like not just the sacking of a coach in the way that in England, it's a it, it happens so often. Like we're kind of already over Antonio Conte being ditched by Spurs because that's how commonplace it is. This feels like a, like a moment in inverted commas. And it's been culturally very, very interesting to watch it for the first time. Yeah, you know, it's... 
it's really interesting. We were kind of talking about Munich itself as a city before we started recording because we were kind of joking about one of the build stories that kind of went into great detail as to where Thomas Tuchel went to celebrate for dinner when he got the job. And the thing that always kind of strikes me whenever I do make the trip out there to cover games at Bayern is that Munich itself is actually a very quiet town in the grand scheme of, you know, not just the world, but even in Germany, like... To me, it seems nothing quite like Cologne or Hamburg or Berlin. And, you know, there's obviously that's not exactly a bad thing because, you know, some of the best cities in the world are big cities that feel small uh, or, or feel yeah. peaceful. And it mm-hmm. certainly does feel very different to a lot of German cities in that regard. But I think when you, when you kind of take that into the football context, it makes you really appreciate, um, you know, how much of Bayern Munich's support actually resides outside of the city itself. And I don't just mean the wider Bavarian area, I mean in the country itself. I mean I remember going to um I remember going to the Bayern Dortmund game last season and I was flying through Frankfurt and Frankfurt itself and this was actually the same weekend as Frankfurt were playing Europa League. Frankfurt Airport was full of Bayern Munich fans, you know, and they were um. making the trip to 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 Bavaria, to Munich to 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 go to the Dortmund game and I think that's also something that comes in. It def, I mean, we could rattle on about like web analytics and traffic and stuff. And, you know, Manu and I also definitely know that Bayern obviously hold a huge um, support in the US and in the UK. And it's just obviously one of the biggest clubs in the world. But I think it also has a wider appeal across Germany. Uh, and I think that's also why it gets such big, such huge billing or top billing um, as opposed to other clubs. But Manu, you want to jump in here and just kind of let us know what you, how you've taken in the last 72 hours and what has changed for you in terms of your perspective or information you've picked up or what? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, obviously, I've taken in as much as I can and um, I wrote a really long piece um, on Friday for, for the Game Pressing Substack where, you know, the next day, um, because I think a lot of things were a lot clearer the next day than the day off, right? Um, where I kind of tried to dissect what happened here. And it's really interesting too, um, over the course of the weekend, um, which I was supposed to have off, spoke to a bunch of people in Munich, but also people that work in, in the industry in Germany, right? Um, sort of to get a perspective. And what, what materialized to me here is that there's um, two very distinct camps um, there's the pro Hassan Salihamidzic camp, and then there's the pro Julian Nagelsmann camp, right? And the stories on those two sides are very different. Um, of course, it's our job to to use the sources and the information that is given to us, and um, sort of come up with a picture here. But from what I understand is that this hasn't been working for some time. Um, the this is something you know that becomes quite clear when you talk to both sides. Um, that there was already quite significant doubts um, before the World Cup that whether Nagelsmann and Bayern Munich would work out. In fact, Stefan, we we ran a podcast um, in the fall where we said, "Is Thomas Tuchel next?" Um, a show that's actually been one of our most listened to podcasts ever, yeah. right? Um, and I think there was already smoke then. Um, I think what happened in the last few, I want to say weeks, but it's probably days is the more accurate description here, is that it became quite clear that if Bayern Munich do this, um, and this is the Bayern Munich side of the story, right? 
then they have to do this now because Tumor Tuchel will, would have not been available on the market in the summer. I think it was quite clear that this was going to happen this summer anyways. Um, I think they were getting to a point where they, where by the Bayern Munich camp felt this was no longer tangible, that the relationship between the club and the, the coach was at a point where they could no longer work together long term. And this is what Oliver Kahn said, right? Um, this wasn't about this season. It was also about the goals that they wanted to reach next year. Um, the Nagelsmann camp, of course, is very disappointed. Um, they feel that they are hard done by and they feel that they, the, the Khan and uh, Salihamidzic are guided by decision makers above them. Uh, the Vorstand with where Oli Hoeneß still has a hefty word to say, right? Um, you know, this is maybe something that is projected onto the decision um, because the other side says that, no, this is Khan's and Salihamidzic's decision all the way through. What, I, what I'm getting here, though, is this was obviously a very difficult decision to make, a decision that cost the club a lot of money. Um, and because of that, it obviously is getting the headlines that it deserves, right? Because they essentially fired one of the most promising coaches, not just in Germany, but in world football, who cost them, when you put it all together in the region of 45 million euros, and replaced them with another German coach who has a huge reputation, not just in Germany, but also abroad because he won the Champions League with, with Chelsea. So you already get the circus that is Bayern Munich to begin with, right? Um, I was joking before the show that it's not just built that ran five headlines. You go to Süddeutsche Zeitung, which of course is located in Munich, but they have nine or 10 Thomas Tuchel Nagelsmann stories, right? Just on their main homepage. Uh, you go to Zeit, you go to Spiegel, every single one of these newspapers, it's a big story, but I think it's getting amplified because it's also two huge personalities that are involved at a club that is sort of at a crossroads where the old guard is still has a say, but the new guard is trying to put a stamp on it, right? And I think too, and Seb, I'm really curious what your thoughts on this. Bayern Munich have always been really, really ruthless in their decision-making, Right. But this one feels especially ruthless in terms of it's, yes, it's a rational choice. You're replacing one head coach who you think is no longer working well with a guy that is only available now. So you make this decision right away. It's the sort of decision that you make on playing football manager because there's no real people yeah. involved. Right. But that's how it kind of felt like for me. I actually, that's probably one of my takeaways from it. How much process was a factor for a lot of people, a lot of people who mm. um, know Bayern Munich a lot better than I do, but it didn't feel like a very Bayern Munich moment in terms of, I know that <clears throat> obviously it's an enormous club. And I think actually um, one of the things that people are realizing is that Bayern Munich are a much bigger club than they thought they were. Um, obviously I've yeah. sort of seen the statistics and the shirt sales and the number of fan clubs they have. And, you know, I, I'm aware of how they compare to other European football teams. But for a lot of people, I suppose the kind of the depth of this story is a uh, is testament to that. But then, in an almost kind of contradictory manner, you have a, an almost familial aspect to um, the executive hierarchy, or that's mm -hmm. the kind of the the perception that the club likes to engender. Um, and so within that, you have someone being finding out they're sacked through. I think Manny, correct me if I'm wrong, but he found out kind of secondhand. Um, yeah. That's you correct. also have it happen when he's on holiday and you also, I mean, these, these kind of things have a, a life of their own beyond a certain point, of course, but um, there was also absolute 
dead-eyed certainty over who his replacement was before he'd even returned to Munich to actually um, to make the process official. And these are things, and I, I don't mean this is in a complimentary way, these are things you associate with English football. Yeah, managers being sacked in the in the dressing room after a game or, mm. you know, in in old old parlance it would have been finding out through teletext or whatever. Um God, I feel I feel old saying that. And I'm sure the people <laughs> listening who don't actually know what teletext or CFAX were. But my point being is that I understand um the kind of um emotionless footballing logic behind it. I think we all mm. do. Um although one thing I'll say, and not to meander too far off topic, but one of the things that has come out is there was a, a general dissatisfaction. Three goes mm-hmm. of saying that at the end of a Monday. It's been obviously a big, pretty long day um, <laughs> about the way Nagelsmann conducted himself and, yeah. you know, his his maturity level. Think back to that moment after the, the Gladbach game. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's Bayern's responsibility because if you hire Nagelsmann mm-hmm. and you've done your due diligence on him you know that these aspects exist within his personality you know that pressure is likely to um, accentuate them and you have to put up with that if you want to have the coaching mind and the um and this guy who's become almost the poster child for young coaches who haven't played the game to a really high level sort of the 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 new age technocrat model then it's kind of partly it's your responsibility to make good on your own investment, if that makes sense, because um, there is no preparation for managing Bayern Munich for Hüchlin Nagelsmann. There's no dry run. There's nowhere in Germany he could have gone. Like mm. we talked off air about how his original career plan was to have a stop between Leipzig and a club of Munich size. And mm. um, there's good reason for that because you you, you don't get two goes you don't get the practice run at the super club job you just don't and so you have to factor that in if you're buying and so to to get to this point and to be unhappy about all the things that you probably could have predicted that feels quite unsatisfactory too in in concert with all these all these concerns about manny said it best how you treat a person um mm-hmm. and it's been pretty underwhelming yeah you know it's really interesting that you say that because having thought about it over the weekend it it's actually made me think back to when Dortmund um, sacked Marco Rosa um, yeah. in the sense that, you know, technically it was justified or they could they could justify it. And, you know, there were certain, certainly large sections of the support that, you know, um, weren't entirely supportive of Rosa. I know Rosa is a little different because he came from, uh, you know, a kind of, well, he came from Gladbach, where the fans had kind of fallen out with him. And there was like there was a kind of a lot of bit of, a bit of bad blood in the regards to that. So he maybe didn't get off to a great start at Dortmund, and um, he let's say he didn't have the same sort of fanfare uh, that Nagelsmann had when he got sacked at Bayern. But mm. I think what was really interesting of all the quotes I've read this weekend about the interviews, it was when Hassan Sajamovic said that. When he phoned up Thomas Tuchel to talk about taking on the job, Tuchel said, "I could be there in twenty minutes," and <laughs> that's and that's because Tuchel has been living in Munich. And you know, the press in Germany have been saying, "Well, you know, this is because uh, it's where his ex-wife lives and it's where his two daughters live, so he wants to be near his family," and that's perfectly understandable. But mm. indirectly, kind of has maybe led to the same situation that we had at Dortmund, where we had Marco Rosa down on the pitch. But every night, you know, um, Vatska was going out for a glass of wine with 
Eden Terzic and talking yeah. things over, you know, and it's almost kind of like if you have the successor in the back in the background there for long enough, they're eventually going to become more and more appealing, especially if Tuchel starts getting suggestions or offers that he can maybe go on to a club like Real Madrid or Barcelona or whoever else at the end of the season. So that was that's kind of something that I found interesting parallels in. And look, in hindsight, now you're not going to get any Dortmund fans saying, you know, they're, they're, they're still shedding a tear for Marco Rosa um, mm-hmm. after what Terzic has since done at the club. But at the time, it definitely felt to me like it's, 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 I've found myself with the same reaction to both sackings in the sense that it, it it felt very harsh, and you're right. It does kind of seem more English in, the, in that regard. Maybe not just English, because obviously, you know, Italian football and Spanish football is obviously just as ruthless. Um, Italian football, perhaps even more so, if you want to kind of dig into the numbers as to how many head coaches. In, in, in a funnier way, though, like in Italy, you get stories <laughs> about like the same guy being sacked five times in the same season. It's there's a kind of comedic element to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. But actually, before we started recording, I did kind of jot down some stats in terms of. Mm-hmm you know, whether Bayern have actually kind of shifted the way that they um, behave since Salihamovic kind of t- took on the reins there. And, you know, you can, w- w- at what point he actually started calling the shots is certainly up for debate because, you know, he was a sporting director or joined the club as a sporting director in 2017, uh, but then he became like the sort of CEO in 2020. So, you know, whether those two jobs are similar or not, it's up for debate. But what I did find quite interesting is that from 2017 onwards, uh, the average lifespan of a head coach at Bayern Munich was 498 days or 69 games. But for the four or five head coaches that came before that, it was 732 days and 107 games. So not far off that number halving since Salihamovic has kind of came in as a sporting director. And, yeah. you know, I've also kind of jotted down some numbers for his transfer, the transfers that the club have kind of greenlit since he's came in, because I'm hoping to do my newsletter on him, a little, you know, a little deeper dive into how the club has shifted under Salihamovic since he came in. But mm. I think you can definitely kind of look through some of those transfers and we could definitely argue to the cows came home as to, you know, whether these guys have paid off, but you're talking about like 80 million euros for Hernandez, 67 million for Delict, 49 million for Sani, 43 million for Pamecano, 42 million for Tolisso. So that's the top five. Um, and of course, there are some bargains in there. Don't get me wrong. They've picked up Gnabi for 8 million, Leon Goretzka for free, Alfonso Davies for 14. You know, there's obviously always, there's always kind of good and pros there. But I, I kind of mentioned this to Manu over the weekend that. This feels like something you would expect from like a club like Chelsea or PSG and not Bayern Munich. And yeah. part of me wonders if that's intentional. Do you know what I mean, Manu? Yeah. No, it's, it's a really good point. And I, I actually, the comparison that I made was with uh, Real Madrid, right? It, Bayern Munich are starting to feel increasingly like the Galacticos. And it's because also the, the players that they um, are starting to attract um Sepp is going to hate me for this because I'm going to bring it up again, but they've been constantly <laughs> linked with Harry Kane, right? And I don't, I think that is like even just being linked is by design, right? Um, the fact that they signed Sadio Mane, that they signed, uh, Joao Cancelo, um, these are, or Matthias de Licht is another one, right? These are not very typical Bayern Munich transfers when we go back into the history of the club. 
they wouldn't go out and sign a big ready-made star in his 30s. That wasn't necessarily how they operated. And um, this coaching sacking too, like the opportunistic approach here that, okay, well, Thomas Tuch is available. We do this now or we don't do it. And they do it. And it's like, it's almost like trying to generate headlines for headlines sake in some ways. Um, and Real Madrid had, had an era where they were very much like that too, right? And the squad feels increasingly like they assembled the super squad, really expensive, expensive team. Um, and it's just, yeah, it feels a bit different than it used to, um, in many ways. And it does feel a bit like PSG. It does feel a, I mean, Chelsea is a completely different beast. I, I just don't think anyone understands here what's going on. Maybe Chelsea under Abramovich, right? It's maybe a better comparison, but. Um, and Real Madrid is another one that comes to mind in, in certain times. And that is very different. I feel that, you know, all of a sudden it has to be the biggest names. It has to be the biggest players. It has to be superstars. It has to be, you know, um, Sadio Mane is a, is a fine player, right? Um, but did he really make this team better or was he the proper fit? I think that almost felt secondary. The same can be said in many ways about Harry Kane, if that really happens, right? Um, another name that has been, I've been told that they are looking into, and this is really early stages, so please don't radio me, but Roberto Firmino is all of a sudden a candidate at Bayern Munich. You know what I mean? Like it's, these are all big names, but it's almost like they're signing these players without having a fit for them. Mm. And, that just feels all very different at the moment. Yeah, let me let me ask you this, Seb. You know, a lot of the kind of media coverage around why Nagelsmann was sacked, and you know, Sally Hamovich has kind of said the same as much. Um, is it basically boils down to the fact that the squad wasn't um, performing under Nagelsmann? Do you a I mean, how much do you put in? How much legitimacy do you put behind that, or weight behind that? And b you know, when you look at that Bayern squad and the players that have and haven't been performing, how much do you put down to Nagelsmann or how much do you think the players have to take responsibility there? Yeah, there's definitely points on either side of that. I mean, <clears throat> obviously, the major one is Mane because of you know, the profile of his, of his arrival. Hmm. Um, it's an unfortunate situation because obviously he got injured before the World Cup and hasn't really been fully fit since. Sané, I know we've talked about this on, we talked about this on the spaces, um, mm. where we spoke about how actually statistically a lot of these players are having pretty good seasons. But I would say in terms of what they have been in the past, like if you look mm. at, I think regression is probably too harsh a word to use in relation to Nabry, but he's mm. not the player he was a couple of years ago in terms of his, our expectations of what he could achieve aren't. Um, <clears throat> I suppose the ones that you'd throw into that mix just because of how excited people were about them arriving at the club, Masrawi and Gravenberg, um, mm. And it feels it feels very difficult to judge Nagelsmann individually on that because it doesn't matter where players from the Eredivisie go. It's always a little bit of a toss of the coin about how they mm. convert um, mm. because it just is. And especially if you come out of a system like Ajax where everything is so well-defined and you mm. exchange that for a team in not an unprecedented state of flux, but probably then the first major transition Um the the most challenging transition because in the sense that you can't when a player like Robert Lewandowski leaves you can't replace him you, you just can't you have to adapt in some way and so you exchange stability for um, 
kind of nebulous concepts and um, a, a team that's kind of um, it, it's, it's the equivalent of trying to trying to trying to build the airplane as you fly it essentially, um, and that's an incredibly challenging situation. Um, so actually, apportioning blame in any sensible ratio is is really really hard. Um, and at one point to make though on on the kind of the the flexing of the muscles and this sort of signing players for the sake of reputation or sacking a manager because um, you're able to. I feel that that's part of that because within the context of the Bundesliga, like the big advantage that Bayern Munich have is is to be able to perform the mid-season reset in such a way. Like you have the resources. I I think they still have the biggest commercial revenue in the whole of Europe. Um, They have these advantages. And one of the ways to kind of to use them is to identify something that's not working early and then change it immediately. Now compare that to even big English clubs. So look at church, compare the way that Bayern Munich have behaved over Nagelsmann with how Spurs have behaved with Antonio Conte. Like, mm. Instead of dallying and waiting a week and then, ah, oh, well, you know, we'll wait until the end of the season because it's a little bit cheaper and we can save some money and we'll retain some staff. You just kill the whole thing and change direction within the space of 24 hours. Now, I think that's a really tempting button for a club like Bayern Munich to push because you're able to. Um, and, and so that's a factor here too. But like, it's, I don't know. I, I think whenever a manager is sacked, I think the easiest time to judge what he's done is in the year after he's left. Because then you kind of see the truth serum take effect, mm-hmm. right? You see what players are against some, under somebody else's management. And you see, for instance, like, well, these players have been, um, some players have been complaining about his manner and his um, his uh, man management. Well, Tuchel's got a very, very strong record for man management, at least in the short term. Did at PSG. Mm-hmm. Chelsea, a lot of people said some very positive things about how he explained, for instance, why they were being left out or um, why their minutes were being reduced or why they were given a, a specific role. So if underperformance continues, you kind of take an excuse off the table and that kind of recontextualized the way we view the Nogsman, not era, but it's not 18 months can't really be an era, but I suppose, you know, that period of buying. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, I guess the expression is the proof will be in the pudding eventually yeah. as to whether the team actually works out. And I actually remember Manu and I discussed that there's actually probably a German term for this. Can you remember what it was, Manu? The German, ex- the German equivalent of the proof is in the pudding. Oh God, what's that again? Um, <laughs> off Blatz. Yeah, something like that. I'll let, I'll, but like, I think you're absolutely right. But I think the really interesting thing for me is, and I guess this comes back to Hassan Zajamovic, but if you kind of look at that squad and where it was misperforming or underperforming, I think you could probably make a reasonable case that it's it's problems that Nagelsmann has had to inherit. You know, you talk, I mean, I know Manuel Neuer's been injured since the turn of the year, but we forget that he was having a very wobbly season before he picked yeah. up the injury. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember we even talked about whether he should be starting for Germany at the World Cup at one point, Manu. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Matthias De Ligt hasn't exactly been performing uh, since he came Ubi into the Meccano. club. Meccano as well, of course. Alfonso yeah. Davies hasn't had a great season and, you know, you could argue as to whether that's Nagelsmann's fault or maybe it's just the fact that Davies is at a certain point in his career where complacency is beginning to seep into things. Benjamin Pavard's had issues for a while at Bayern Munich. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Kimmich and Goretzka duo in the middle of the park is something that was inevitably going to begin to start creaking, considering how much football both play and Goretzka's tendency to pick up an injury. Um, 
and of course the the most notable one is obviously the Leroy Sani one who has now gone two consecutive head coaches at Bayern Munich who haven't been able to figure out what to do with him. And if mm. you then throw the fact that Robert Lewandowski then leaves the club and Nagelsmann is kind of left with Chupa Moting as his only number nine in the squad, then I do kind of wonder if the club sat down at one point and said, well, we've got one of two options. We can either admit that we were wrong with the players we've signed or still have uh, and sell everyone and try and buy a whole new squad in the summer or we can sack the head coach and hope the next guy can do a better job and in football it's always the second option these clubs go for and I think it was really interesting that Oliver Kahn in particular who looked so incredibly uncomfortable whenever he was put in front of a camera this weekend continued to try and hammer home that point we have one of the best squads in Europe we should be winning the Champions League we need to have a head coach who can prove that and it's almost like they're doubling down on arguably their own mistakes um, mm-hmm. in terms of scouting, in terms of buying players, in terms of, in terms of just putting too much reliance on players that have perhaps, excuse me, uh, passed their peak, you know? So, I don't know. It, if it, Manu, where do you come in on all this? Do you think, I guess we can now kind of move towards the kind of Thomas Tuchel side in this, and do you think, think Tuchel's going to be able to come in with a magic wand and, uh, well, I guess we could talk about the Saturday's game, or do you think it'll make a difference there and going forward? Yeah. I think you make a really good point there um, about Oliver Kahn, um, the stone-faced impression that he... I got up really early to watch this press conference um, because I, I, I was really fascinated by it. Um, and stone-faced is the, the right way to describe it. And some of the things that were said, right, um, also by Hassan Salihamidzic is them and doubling down is, is the right word is Stefan. They're doubling down on what they believe is the best roster in Europe, right? Um, I think whether that's um, correct or not, um, as the same German or as you, the translation, right? The, the truth is on the field as the same German, the Wahrheit liegt auf dem Platz. But I think they felt that Nagelsmann wasn't getting out the most of the squad that they gave him because in, that's that's a big difference in German football over English football, right? The, the 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 management puts together the team and the head coach is supposed to then get the most out of this team. And there was a feeling that among Khan and Salihamidzic that they gave him this world-class squad that can win everything or should be winning everything. And in the Champions League, he, he, did, he obviously delivered, right? Um, the results there have been remarkable. Um but they just felt that in the Bundesliga, it just wasn't happening for one reason or another. The consistency was lacking, right? Um, and I think that's also because although these are all world-class players, I think they also, a lot of them are inconsistent. Um, and I think that is also the truth here. And that's all, that's maybe on Khan and Salihamidzic. And I question whether Thomas Tuchel will do much better, right? Um, Bill just released this list today about, and always take that with a grain of salt, please, because it is Bill and they, they speak with different people. Um, but that Gnabry, Sane, Musiala, Cancelo, and Mane were not uh, Nagelsmann fans. Obviously, Manuel Neuer and Sven Ulreich were completely against them because, well, he fired their body. Um, and so... Kimmich and Goretzka were huge Nagelsmann fans, obviously. Um, and Upamecano and Pavard, which is interesting. Um, and De Licht as well, were, were considered Nagelsmann fans, according to Bild. So please take that with a grain of salt. Müller, who is the coach killer, was considered neutral. Um, 
I, I find that all very, very fascinating. And I think it's, it's also shows you how dynamic the dressing room at Bayern Munich can be, right? Um, a lot of us said about in the German press how, and they kind of were confused about this term. And it's obviously that they took that term from, from English sports, right? Losing the dressing room is, um, is a very English term. And they're saying, yeah, I had the, I had the Kabine verloren, which Süddeutsch then translated into he lost the cabin, which is obviously not the right <laughs> translation. <laughs> um, it's losing the dressing room, which is very, very common terminology in North maybe, American Maybe sports. he'd been on a ski holiday with Manuel Neuer. You yeah. never know. <laughs> yeah, maybe he lost the cabin there. <laughs> Skiing is a very dangerous sport for Bavarians. <laughs> like, um, I, yeah, I guess I have to be careful these days what I do. Um, but to go to Thomas Tuchel, Right. And the dressing room at Bayern is very, very complicated. And I don't think Nagelsmann lost the dressing room. I think there were certain players that he were, were upset about what he was doing, but he didn't lose. The, the key player that he lost was Neuer, but he wasn't there. Right. So I don't think that played a huge role. Kimmich and Goretzka are supposed to be the new leaders in this team. And what I could see a little bit here is that Müller is saying, well, hold on, before anyone takes the captain's armband, it's going to be me because I've been here longest after Neuer, right? So I think there's a little bit of a debate with that. Um, but I don't think he lost the dressing room because there were still very strong elements here that were very pro-Nagelsmann. And now Thomas Tuchel comes in. And we know that Thomas Tuchel at Dortmund struggled with the dressing room at times, right? At PSG, he did actually quite well because he was able to combine um, Neymar. He was actually really close with Neymar, right? And this is something that I think is really remarkable because I think that is actually a difficult part. He didn't always uh, see eye to eye with um, Kylian Mbappe, but they made it work, which again is is huge, right? Kylian Mbappe is PSG. Um, and so for him to make that work is, I think, quite remarkable. And then, Seb, and you pointed this out many times, and I think this is also really important. I think a lot of players at Chelsea, I mean, it's hard to say which players now because Chelsea is, of course, like three teams now. But, um, you know, at the time, a lot of Chelsea players were actually quite happy with Thomas Tuchel, right, and the man management and the way he came in and stabilized that squad really quickly. And I think that is maybe the blueprint of what he would do here. Um, I think that he's going to come in and he's very quickly going to establish his guys, and those guys are going to get a big part of the playing time while also still allowing um, other players to, uh, like younger players, because that is going to be one of his jobs, right? To, to improve these younger players that the club bought and see as the future. Tal and Grafenberg and Masraoui come to mind. Um, but I think that's what he's going to do. He's going to try to really quickly establish a hierarchy that both takes on Kimmich and Goretzka on board because he will need those, but also get Müller right away on his side as well. And then also these other guys that were all considered pro, pro Nagelsmann. And I think that's what he's going to do right away. Um, whether he can do it this week before the Dortmund game, I question that because as he said on the press conference, most of the internationals won't be back until Friday. So this Dortmund game, I think and luckily enough, um, you know, the Salihamidzic and Khan have already made quite clear that this is already about next year. If this goes sideways, they can just say that's because of Nagelsmann. It's not Tuchel's fault. It's Nagelsmann's fault, right? Um, but I think that is what he's going to do. He's trying to get a hierarchy going as quickly as possible and, you know, probably try to establish that as quickly as possible after the Dortmund game. Mm. Um, I'll kind of throw this to you, Seb, as well, with a very simple question. 
Um, will Ryan Gravenberg be starting against Dortmund? Wow. Um, <laughs> no, and is I, I he, and is he so. the real power broker at Munich, considering that he seems to be the, <laughs> the player sharpening a knife at Nagelsmann for the last 12 months? I suppose the only reference point I have, well, first of all, no, I, I don't think that um, Raven Gravenberg is the, the snake in the grass in Bavaria. <laughs> um, but the only reference point I have is when I think back to the great success of Tuchel's Chelsea team, it was probably that pivot of Kante and Kovacic in the centre of midfield, which very clearly is going to be occupied by you know, Kimmich and uh, Goretzka. Um, so I have some questions about where like these younger players are going to, slot in, you'd have thought that perhaps um, Musiala will become something of a false nine, inherit the position that perhaps Harvard's tried to play at Chelsea um, with a kind of a, a Nabry or a, a Sane either side. Um, not sure what happens to Muller. I'm not sure what happens to Maserawi. I think the big question I have is who the third centre-back is going to be if he goes to three at the back. You'd say Pavard, mm. but Pavard is, you guys have both mentioned this already, um, like it, that's a funny situation. Like, because yeah. I, Pavard is neither really a fullback nor a centre half. He's kind of in between those two positions, and and that's always been a little bit of a problem. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I can understand it long term. I can understand it from the perspective of, of of like how you manage a young player, so how you say to a Gravenberch, um, right, this is why you're not playing, but also this is why you, you know, this is what you need to do to get into my team. And actually, again, at Chelsea, like if you think about the team he inherited there from Frank Lampard, the team that was extremely young, uh, he had players like Mason Mount and, and Reese James, obviously there. Harvard's was very young at the same time. Um, uh, Trevor Chalaber played a little bit under um, under Tuchel. I, you've got someone that knows how to handle talent, and I think that's really, really important. Not to say that Julian Nagelsmann didn't, but I, I would imagine that's been factored into the thinking somewhere. Um, one thing I, I wanted to chip in without interrupting anybody, but when we talked about when we talked earlier about individual improvement, like one of the yeah. things that you you might say in Nagelsmann's defence is, well, um, De Ligt and Upamecano as a as a pair started to perform an awful lot better as the season went on, mm. like. You know, it wasn't night and day, but you saw the promise, certainly in De Ligt, you saw him becoming a much, much more stable player and playing some of the best football since he arrived. I'd also mm. say that, like, we talk about, and this is kind of a, a little bit of a hobby horse of mine, but people knock Eric Chupamoting and they they kind of, they sort of pelt his reputation with funny videos and bad misses. And yes, clearly he's been guilty of some of them. I would venture to say that actually Hulin Nagelsmann had him playing some of the best football of his career, like efficiency-wise, mm. Yeah. Um, Chupa Moting was excellent at times, um, given that he was he was he was asked to perform an impossible task in replacing Lewandowski. Additionally, um, Jamal Musiala's ascent to becoming already one of the very best young players in the world, clearly, mm -hmm. and he, he's he's up there as someone that sort of group of three to five players who I just love watching. I don't care yeah, what the same. game is. I'd watch him all day. I'd watch him play football in the park by himself. Stefan knows he's, he's my favorite player. <laughs> he's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful footballer. Like, I think yeah. for me, Bellingham just shades it. Just, I, I, I love the spirit with which Bellingham plays football yeah. and the attitude. But Misiala, as a, as a set of abilities, well, he's really flourished under, under Nagelsmann. and so which is why it's surprising that they didn't get along. 
Exactly. Supposedly. That. Exactly that. Yeah. Because you wouldn't, you would, you would, I, I had no idea that they didn't get on, which is selling no, something, really isn't not. it? Right. Like, yeah. So it, it's an interesting dynamic. And I, but I, 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 I think what this always sort of comes down to you is I think within reason, and we, we said this the other day, if you walk through that dressing room door and you've already won the European Cup, it's different just because mm. of where you are and yeah. the respect you immediately command. I think for a Nagelsmann figure, um, you are in the business of having to persuade people and convince them that you're right mm-hmm. for the job. Tuchel walks in and thinks, <laughs> from his perspective, uh, I've managed I've managed Paris Saint-Germain, I've managed Chelsea, uh, two of the hardest dressing rooms in world football at any time in history, really, yeah. um, especially Chelsea. Uh, it's kind of a, a viper's nest of a dressing room and always has been. Um, this Bayern Munich dressing room will have you know a few fears for him. So mm. I'm optimistic and I, 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 I'm, I'm fascinated by it actually, Stefan. Um, that's the short answer because it could go so, so well and you could easily see that happening. You, for instance, you could easily see them winning the Champions League this season. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting we talk about like the dynamic between the head coaches and the players because... The interesting thing to me is that while Nagelsmann definitely had his own way of behaving, it didn't strike me as being outside of the realms of acceptability. You know, he's animated on the pitch, but so so is Thomas Tuchel, certainly. So is you know Jurgen Klopp, so is Pep Guardiola. Uh, you know, he made comments after press conferences, but again, so so do all these players, our head coaches, yeah. all the time, and. If you even look at his predecessor, Hansi Flick, I don't think Nagelsmann has said anything in the press since he was in the job that goes beyond the way that Hansi Flick used to um, really leave Leroy Sané out to dry after performance. He's really, <laughs> yes. he, 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 you know, he from week to week, he would break down what Sané did in each game and whether he did a good job or not. And it was almost... And, you know, we now know that, you know, Flick and Hassan Saihamovic obviously butted heads constantly. And I do, yeah. part of me does kind of wonder why that's maybe why Nagelsmann hasn't ultimately worked at Bayern. Because after Flick and after a head coach that was more than happy to go toe-to-toe with Hassan Saihamovic in terms of the players he bought, the team, the, in terms of the players he was expected to play with, maybe... Sajamovic thought, well, I'll bring in this young kid from Leipzig and he can be my protege or he can be a head coach. Subservient. Exactly. Yeah. He'd, he'd, be, he'd yeah. be grateful to me giving him this job. And obviously Nagelsmann's came in and just continues to do what he always does, which is a very ambitious head coach. And he's going to say, well, I call the shots. And it's interesting that Sajamovic made a point of saying, no, look, we let Nagelsmann be Nagelsmann. And, you know, um, we didn't get in his way. But I do wonder if... I don't know. I'm I'm really just spitballing here because we're just kind of talking things through on the show live. But I do wonder if that that played some aspect into it where he was hoping for someone who'd be different from Flick, but has actually maybe ended up quite like Flick and be in butting heads with, um, you know, Stalinovich because even this season you look at the players that they brought in and are, are you know, obviously you know it was quite well documented that Bayern did not want to sell Lewandowski and. That obviously just throws a cat amongst the pigeons in terms of Nagelsmann's preparation for the season. But then Sajamovic just goes out and gets Sadio Mane out of the blue. And the thing is, all season we've been talking about how it's quite impressive. It's quite impressive how Bayern over the last 12 or 18 months have managed to continue signing these head these these big players seemingly out of the blue. But it's great entertainment for fans and people like us because it's dramatic, but if you're the head coach who has to work with these guys, it's probably a nightmare, you know, because you can yeah. talk about Sadio. 
if Nagelsmann spends the whole summer preparing for a team with Robert Lewandowski, who then leaves, and then he suddenly has Sadio Mane drop in his in his lap, that completely changes everything. Or, you know, all of a sudden, how Cancelo's rocking up to training on the January transfer deadline day, <laughs> and how does Nagelsmann? I mean, obviously he's a very talented player, Cancelo, but Nagelsmann could have probably turned around and said, "Well, I've spent the last three weeks training Kingsley Coleman to be a, a wing back in our back three system, so." I don't want Cancelo, and that's clearly what's happened since Cancelo's rocked up at the club. But that's not the way that Hassan Sanhamic seems to do business. He seems to wheel and deal and just kind of, when when an opportunity arises, he goes for it um, in terms of the players that have been signed. I mean, you can even make the same argument for Matthias De Ligt. Did Bayern need De Ligt, or did they go sign him because they knew that Juventus were broke and probably wanted to cash in on one of their best assets? So they moved very quickly, and there's definitely a skill uh, and something to admire in that, in the way that Bayern have performed the transfer window. But it's probably not very... It, it probably doesn't work well with a head coach who's trying to make long-term plans. But anyway, we're getting... Think, we're running... Sorry, I'll, I'll let you go, Sib. Uh, chat on. Well, I was just going to say, actually, because it's, it's a inter- really interesting topic. In a way, mm. Bayern Munich feel like they're a little bit of a victim of their own circumstances in the sense that... These high-profile players who become available, like a Delict, a Mane, uh, Meccano was a sort of different case. But where else are they going to go? Like European mm. football now is awash with, like the only the only money <clears throat> really is in England or in Paris. So if you're not of interest to you know one of the top six in England or to Paris Saint Germain, well Barcelona haven't got any money. Real Madrid tightened the, uh, tightened the, the purse strings quite a few years ago. Um, mm. You know, seemingly in preparation for a, a bid for a Kylian Mbappe. Juventus haven't got any money. Roma are in full-scale FFP mode. Like, you don't have many places to, to go. So you imagine, can you imagine how many knocks on the door there are at Bayern Munich for top-class players yeah. who want a change of pace? Like, Cancelo is a classic example. He falls out of Guardiola. Where are you going to go? Like, where are you going to go to play football, to get away from Guardiola? Yeah. Um, fair enough, because he's a pretty intense guy. You get pretty sick of him in a hurry, I'd imagine. Right? <laughs> so Bayern Munich, your only destination. You're not going anywhere else in Germany. If like you're Matthias de Ligt, you're, you can't go to Britta Dortmund just because the resources aren't there. You can't even really go to places like, I mean, you can't even really go to somewhere like Arsenal or Tottenham or even Liverpool. They haven't really got any money. So there's a lot of traffic flowing towards Bavaria is what I'm trying to say. So it's it's quite an interesting dynamic. I mean, look at Cristiano Ronaldo last summer, right? Like, I mean, yeah. I was Great I was example. with uh, I was with Bayern Munich at the WS tour, and uh, Oliver Kahn told us that Cristiano's agent called him once a day. Once a day. It's also sorry, like Ronaldo's agent called Eintracht Frankfurt at some point. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> like I don't but know. But like, if that's, that's true, how desperate they like, were, right? But like, there was yeah. a point where they where they like he was on the phone with Oliver Kahn once a day, trying to convince him to take his player, right? And um. Yeah, it's it's. I think that's a really good point because Bayern Munich are, you know, they're now in that category of maybe three or four clubs that can sign anyone, yeah. right? Um, and there isn't many other teams around the world left that that can pull off a last minute Joao Cancelo move. I mean, even in England, you're quite right. Yeah. Um, Liverpool don't don't have the resources or don't want to have the resources. Maybe the better description. Um, Man United, I guess, but even they are they're in the midst of a of a club sale. Um, we don't know how that's going. So if you're in Man City and you make a certain amount of money, 
you really only left with two or three options, which is crazy. I mean, that's how world football has gone now. We're in the era of the mega clubs, right? Um, which is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a good way to, a good place to end it and just say we simply don't know what's going to happen. Um, well, we'll find out soon. <laughs> on the next season, on the next episode of the Bundesliga. Um but yeah, I think now's probably a good time to wrap up. We've just passed the 50-minute mark and mm. we're probably at risk of just regurgitating everything else we said on the Twitter Spaces show yeah. uh, a few days ago. So, Seb, as always, pleasure to speak to you and thank you once again for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Fantastic. And Manu, I'll let you uh, conclude the episode with your, I think, despite being a very well-known German phrase, it's become something of a catchphrase for you on this show. <laughs> well first of all we need to say that this show is always brought to you by bet online right but um have to have to thank the sponsors first but yes thanks again for everyone for listening um we'll be back soon we're now back on our regular schedule I want to point that out too hmm. um so um yeah content is coming uh, your regular way and we'll be back soon with another episode until then auf Wiedersehen Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.